We study billionaires, and this is episode 43 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And uh, today, I'm actually accompanied by a whole lot more people than uh, just Stig. I'm looking at Colin Yablonski. I'm looking at Hari Ramachandra. And I'm also looking at Toby Carlisle because we have formed our mastermind group for the uh, second quarter of 2015. And we're going to be talking about all those topics that everybody wants to discuss out there. And uh, just kind of looking at the direction that the market's going here in the future. So I want everybody to know you got the insider conversation that we're having with our own mastermind group and how we're preparing for uh, the future with the financial markets. What do you guys think about oil? You, let's talk about that. Where do you guys see that? Um, and I'm really kind of looking at you, Colin, because you're so close to that area and it's really kind of intimate to your region. But um, what's the word up there? What are people saying? People are nervous right now, to be completely honest. Um, a lot of companies have been laying off employees, major companies, ma- major organizations that are invo- involved in the oil and gas industry and in the oil sands development in other resource companies. Um, and I think it's starting to slowly trickle down to other elements of the market. Like I talked about with real estate, where you're starting to see home prices drop um, month over month. Listings are increasing dramatically. Um, the luxury market is getting absolutely crushed in Calgary right now where any homes that are priced above a million dollars, they're just sitting there and they've been sitting there for months. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next, you know, three months, because we've gone through this full cycle in Canada where about nine months after you see the drop in oil, typically it starts to trickle down to people losing their jobs, um, real estate prices dropping and so forth. So it'll be interesting to see. And Stig, I saw that you had something there. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if this is this is good news for uh, for the community in Calgary, but I'm definitely bull on oil. And I know that this might seem completely contradictory that since we, we are hearing that we have a new world order, the, the game is changing when it comes to oil. OPEC has just let loose. And there was all these good arguments why uh, oil, pre- oil prices won't uh, rebound. I just think that we need to remember that oil, that's just a commodities business. So you can compare this to something like the insurance business, or you can compare it to other kinds of, of commodities, where there is actually a somewhat low barrier of entry. I mean, yes, it depends on how you define the oil market, but there's actually a very low uh, barrier of entry because it's, it's a homogeneous product. So uh, you will see, in general, a very steady demand the, the demand for oil is steadily increasing by just about 1%. have been that for a long, long time. But then you will see that the supply really keeps fluctuating. And now you're seeing a downturn in that, Preston. I see you have something. So I, I guess I have the opposite perspective on this one from you. And I think Toby, if I remember right, Toby, you, you've been buying into a little bit of oil as it's been getting hit, correct? The uh, the energy companies, not not uh, not the commodity. Okay, so you've been buying into the companies a little bit. Now, this is my concern with oil moving forward. I think in the short term, maybe like in the next six months, you might see the price on the on the barrel of oil kind of rebound. But here's my concern and why I think Buffett sold out of his big Exxon position is because um, I think that if you're if you're a company that is very heavy on tangible assets. 
I think you're going to get your your lunch eaten in, over the next decade, simply because of the the fact that inflation I think is going to have some some real effects on those types of businesses with their capital expenditures. So that's why I'm I think that's why he sold out of that position. I could be wrong. It could be something else. But that's why I'm a little hesitant looking at it from a long-term investment standpoint, why I'm a little hesitant to get back into the oil uh, businesses. Uh, Toby, I want to hear what you got to say. The the oil companies are having to do increasingly heroic things to find oil. So oil sands wasn't uh, economical for a long period of time because the price of oil was simply too low and it costs more to, to get the, the oil out of the sands. Similarly, for the offshore oil drilling, they have to go increasingly further offshore and deeper to find those big oil fields, which are, which are expensive to do. Um, just on the price of oil, so the best guess if you're trying to price out a commodity for the price of that commodity in 12 months, and it doesn't really matter what it is, the best guess is always the current price. And the reason is, it's not that it's likely to be where it is in 12 months' time, it's that it's so unpredictable, up or down, that you minimise your error by guessing or by putting into your model the current price. What interesting thing with oil, I saw some research just this week by uh, a, a fund manager who, who I know in Australia, who, who was a university lecturer while I was there. He's an econometrician, Dr. Chris Leidner. He's looked at the price of oil and said, typically that is the case. The best guess for the price of oil 12 months hence is where it currently is for the simple fact that it minimizes your error. But when oil drops precipitously like this, and it happens so infrequently, that you can find that there's a reasonable chance that it does rebound and it's considerably higher 12 months from now. And I think he said that the margin is something like 40 to 70% higher from the low. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is, this is uh, as it is with all commodities, this is really a marginal cost uh, perspective. So, and, you know, so in the long term, you will just see that like the profit, that's simply the adaption between the marginal cost and, and the marginal revenue. And you will see that you will have like an increasing demand of oil, and, but even a steady demand of oil. And then you will see how the marginal cost for the different companies just adapt to that. And then you will see, for instance, what Toby is talking about, you know, oil sand. And you were talking about that, what's the marginal cost of developing fracking. And then gradually you will see that the oil price just uh, adapt to that. And I think that's something a lot of people are missing because they're saying, we have too much supply. Yes, that's true, but what happens when you have too much supply? Then you will have people going out of the market and that would change the cost structure. Kristen, uh, I just wanted to chime in um, on your thoughts on uh, why Buffett and Munger um, sold off uh, from ExxonMobil. Interestingly, somebody asked the same question in uh, this year's annual meeting at Omaha. And Munger's answer was very interesting. Buffett actually kind of evaded answering this question. He just uh, passed the buck to Munger. <laughs> and Munger, Munger in, his, uh, in his usual form, uh, said, well, it's better than holding cash. And he saw it as a safe alternative place to put his cash, uh, which is waiting for deployment. And that's what he said. He, and that was a very interesting answer. So he basically and, uh, said he'd rather hold cash than to continue holding those companies. Uh, no, it's the other way around. He said he wanted to park his cash somewhere, and he chose ExxonMobil for that. Yeah, and they, when he found, they sold out of that position in what was it, January? Yes, and they didn't really talk about why they sold off, but the inference that 
at least I made uh, from his answer was that they found something else. And it might be uh, the deal that they recently stuck with the 3G folks acquiring craft. So maybe there is uh, some cash requirements there. Uh, so so it, was a, it was just an opportunity cost type deal where they felt like they could get a better deal with the 3G then that's why they moved out of it. So it wasn't like they disliked it. They just found like they had found something that was more valuable. Exactly. It's definitely like uh, I have been following Buffett's oil bets. And um, when I uh, when he bought into ConocoPhillips uh, in 2009 or um, uh, 2010 and then sold it off, it was a clear loss. Uh, they lost a lot of money on that uh, investment. Whereas, correct me if I'm wrong, on ExxonMobil, I don't think they lost much money. They pretty much got their money back. Uh, so that's that's kind of the answer, at least I heard um, in the in the talk. But however, I I liked uh, uh, Toby's description. Essentially, what Toby summarized was that oil industry is a negative feedback loop. Toby, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, in the the way I see it as a negative feedback loop is if the oil prices goes higher, then all these uh, marginal costs uh, that some of the hard to find oil incurs uh, will become justifiable uh, at that price, hundred and above or eighty and above. But as the oil price goes down, all these marginal players like the oil sands, the frackers, all these folks become less economical at that point of time. And as we can see in the recent past, the rig counts have been coming down drastically, which will impact the supply. I think it was, I think it was Stig talking about marginal prices, but I, I agree with Stig. Um, so I just shamelessly, I'm going to plug my website right now. So I have this website called Acquirers Multiple, which um, looks at all the companies listed in the US and uh, examines them on the basis of this acquirer's multiple, which looks for cash-rich balance sheets and strong operating earnings, etc. If I run my model now, and you can see this on the side in the large caps, of the top uh, five, the five cheapest large capitalization companies in the States at the moment, um, four of them are oil and gas. So Valero Valero Energy is number one. Western Refining is number two. Fluor, which is a uh, construction engineering company, is three. Marathon is four. And YPF, which is the Argentinian um, energy company, is, is fifth. So sometimes I'm asked, is this a good metric for looking at uh, energy, oil and gas companies? And when I've separated out only the oil and gas companies to find which ones perform the best, this is the best metric for looking at that, which sometimes that sounds counterintuitive, you know, perhaps you'd, you'd want to look at what their reserves are like or what their costs are like. But for a, for one simple single metric for conducting this type of analysis, it is uh, an enterprise value acquirer's multiple type analysis. So that's one of the things that makes me think that energy is going to, energy companies are going to work because they're simply too cheap. They've just been beaten up so much. There's a lot of um, unhappiness with the with the uh, the oil price and there's a big glut so everybody gets really thinks that the industry is ugly and going to be dead for a while and that's the time that you want to be buying your positions if you're going to so i just want to throw out there you should have seen the smirk on stig's face whenever toby said that he agreed with stig (laughs) 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 yeah well toby's a lot smarter than me so and and it's rare that that people that are smarter than me agrees with me so so that's that's really nice. No, but I actually I kind of expected that because I remember the last interview we had with Tobin. He was saying that he had heard someone saying that it was only the tourists who were buying into oil, and I was thinking, 
it was so much fun. And Toby actually bought into all of that part of time, and I did too. So we're two people and a lot of dumb tourists. And uh, I guess that's <laughs> <clears throat> that's always nice to think about. <laughs> okay, so I want to bring up something real fast here, and then Hari will throw it back over to you. So I got a really interesting email from a gentleman. His name is Matt Hayon. And Matt wrote me this. He said, Preston, I noticed something and I wanted to share this with somebody. Um, I was checking up to see where we were at with the Dondo Holding IPO, uh, which I learned about your podcast whenever we had Hari on early on. And he said, I found this. And he sent me this link. And in the link, he he wrote to me with the quotation. It says, Dondo India LTD is 100% subsidiary of a U.S.-based multinational financial service firm, Dondo Holding. Dondo Holding has recently filed a provisional patent with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, which focuses on an enhanced indexed investing model. Uh, not quite the IPO I was looking for, but what does this mean? And so what it's it, what mom taken away from that, it kind of seems like he's doing something like with the model that Toby has talked about in his deep value book. And I'm curious, Toby, do you know Monish at all? Have you ever talked with Monish? I've uh, exchanged a very few words with with Monish on a few occasions because I've I've run into him at uh, Value Investors Congress out here in Pasadena. He's based in uh, Santa Monica, so when we're we're kind of neighbours, but Santa Monica is pretty big, so I actually haven't seen him in Santa Monica. Um, that enhanced indexing is very popular at the moment, uh, and there are lots of uh, patents uh, for that sort of stuff. I don't know exactly. Is it is it Monish's? Uh, yeah, that's Is it his. Manisha's index? That's his. So there are lots of, you know, I think research affiliates have the have the first patent and theirs is very broad. It's sort of anything that's not market capitalization weighted. So that's, you know, anything equal weight, value weight. Um, I wonder how defensible any of those patents are going to be, but, you know, it makes sense to, to, uh, to set up a, a value-based index in India and then to invest on that basis. That's, that's, that's a smart move, I think. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. They are one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S. registered investment advisors, and Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. The teams at Coriant put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Coriant.com. That's spelled C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. That's Corient dot com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. 
So we came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. Hmm. That's really interesting. So I, I was just curious how much of that would have been pulled from like your acquires multiple. Cause I know whenever I read your book for me, that was kind of a, be- a very big transition in the way that I kind of saw the world of investing. Um, and I was just kind of curious if he had ever contacted you, talked to you about this enterprise value, uh, the, like some of the metrics that you had in your book where you, I mean, if you haven't read to- Toby's book, deep value, it's a fairly, uh, transformational experience if you're a value investor. But I was just curious if, if he had ever reached out to you or talked to you about your book. He hasn't. Um, but there are lots of, you know, it's not, they're not uh, my original ideas in that book. There are, there are lots of people who are at the same time pursuing that opportunity. And I think it's, I think it's clear that that stuff does work. Which metric you choose to use, or if you use some sort of combination of the metrics, it really doesn't matter as long as you're getting some value um, proxy so you could use price to earnings and you'd do perfectly fine. I think um, James O'Shaughnessy should get the, the credit there because he brought out uh, What Works on Wall Street in 1994 and he kind of paved the way for everybody else and probably Joel Greenblatt with Magic Formula deserves the credit in there too. So I'm, I'm uh, very, very late to that party. It's certainly not well, my idea. You know what? You're a really modest guy because in his book, he actually proves how his numbers are actually, what, 2% higher than Greenblatt's uh, magic formula. So you're a very modest person. And I'd like to leave it at that so you don't try to undermine my comment. <laughs> uh, I'm going to throw it over to Hari. <laughs> I'm going to throw it over to Hari. And uh, what were you going to say before that, Hari? Oh, I was just... Uh, uh Asking, I was planning to ask you all a question about um, oil prices. Since we are seeing a lot of fluctuation right now, uh, what's the future of oil 10 or 20 years from now? Uh, keeping in mind that there are a lot of technological innovation happening in the energy space, uh, including the synthetic um, uh, fuels uh, uh, or uh, genetically modified algae that uh, ExxonMobil is investing in along with another company, uh, as well as uh, Elon Musk's uh, constant and persistent endeavor, I would say, uh, to kind of, you know, uh, move us towards a oil-free world. What do you guys think about all that development and uh, how will OPEC fare in the future? Dude, I, I don't know, but I've got to tell a really cool story that happened to me this morning. So my son and I went to a car show because... Um, it's Father's Day. I wanted to go out there and, and, and see some cool cars. My son loves anything mechanical. And we went there and there was a guy who had a Tesla. And it was the first time I've really kind of got up close to a Tesla car. And we walk up there and the guy who was, you know, who owned the car, the the handles for like opening the door were completely flush with the the door itself. And I was like, how in the world do you open this thing? Is it like fingerprint or something? And the guy says, no. He says, watch this. He walks over. He has the key in his pocket. He walks over and as he gets close to like opening the door, the door handle like slowly emerged out of the side of the car and then he like just pulled it open. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And so then I look inside this thing and the dash is like monstrous and it's just nothing but a big, large touch screen, like iPad, like looking thing. And he said it's completely touch, like interactive uh, dash inside this car. So your, your comment, I think, is 
I really think Silicon Valley's on the hunt to turn Detroit upside down. And I think that you have a really good comment. Like, how is technology going to just kind of revolutionize this oil industry? I don't think that I see it happening quickly, but I definitely think that you got a very strong concern and, and risk that you identified. So let's throw it out to the group and see what they think. I think that the the, the death of oil has been um, it's one of those things that everybody predicts 20 years hence and it has been the case for a long period of time. You know, the peak oil idea that we just run out of oil or it gets too expensive to kind of extract. Um, I hope that happens. I hope that we get to that stage where you have a battery at home, it draws energy off peak, so you, you don't pay peak prices. We sort of get smarter about distributing power, so you don't have to, you know, when it's really hot in the middle of summer, you're not drawing it at the worst time of the day, which is what makes it so expensive. So the battery power is going to, you know, time shift the way that we draw power, and hopefully that'll that'll change the, the, the entirety of that of, of several industries. And then you have a, a a car that you can plug in at home, um, solar panels on the roof. I think all that stuff would be great, and I hope it gets here really soon. But I think that um, it's it's going to take a lot lot longer than uh, than we think. Hopefully, it's twenty years, but I guess I would guess longer than that. Hmm. Yeah, I really love when you talk about uh, oil because I kind of feel like Preston and I, we agree on everything. I mean, literally everything when it comes to investing, comes to life in general. But when it comes to oil, I'm always much more bull than Preston. So <laughs> I think that's, that's always good fun. No, so uh, Toby, I think that you are really hitting a spot on when we're talking about distribution. So... Um, a lot of people, they would be thinking, hey, we have other type of energy. Why don't we use that instead? That's really not, not how the energy market works. It's, it isn't like you can say we can have one, bar- um, one barrel oil and that gives a certain amount of energy and then we can have a windmill or a hydro generator. It, it doesn't work like that because partly there is the distribution. You have to get the power somewhere. And then we also have a, a storage problem. You can't store all type of energy the same way. And I think that's that's just something that uh, that we admit from time to time. And then another thing I also want to say about oil, and you know, I it's not like I don't think it would be amazing if we had an oil-free world, also better for the environment. But often when we talk about energy and when we talk about oil in particular, we talk about that in the Western world. So we are really privileged in terms of how we are consuming um, our energy and the technology that we have access to. Now, if you look at something like Eastern Europe or something like Russia, they use a lot of gas, they use a lot of coal. They just have a completely another type of system. They can't distribute that amount of energy because the infrastructure is so much different. And I think that that's something that we might forget when we're talking about the uh, talk about oil, is that the developing world is actually using less and less of the world consumption oil while the developing country is using more and more. And also, they don't have the same environmental issues. So I just want to throw out there. So Stig got so frustrated with my lack of understanding with oil that he found the best book on Amazon about oil. And it's written by Morgan Downey. And the name of the book is Oil 101. And he's actually coming on our show next week for us to interview him. So if you guys have some really good questions about what your concern is with oil, Send us those questions over email, and I'm talking to the Mastermind group because by the time this airs to our audience, we're going to have already interviewed him. So if you guys seriously do have some really good questions, send those over to us so we can ask him next week 
Um, and I've been pouring through his book and it's totally insane. Like I've never thought a person could understand oil at this level, but the, the book is totally amazing, like unbelievable. But anyway, uh, we'll go on to the uh, next topic here. Stig, did you want to ask one of the questions that you had for the group? Yeah, so uh, we have heard a lot of smart people talking about how many stocks you need to have to diversify if you pick single stocks. So a lot of people would say you need to uh, have like 20 stocks because then you can calculate volatility. And if you believe in that as a risk measure, um, it also makes kind of sense that you have something like 20 stocks. And then you have another party who would be saying something like, well, we should just invest in index funds. And I think most people could agree on that we can just buy like the world stock market or S&P 500 or something like that. We don't need more than one or two to be really diversified because it's inherent in that. So I came up with that, probably not all by myself, but I just thought, what if I did something in between? What if I invested in something like Money's Pubrise Company, some, something like Berkshire Hathaway, uh, an active managed ETF? So I would have like, diversification in terms of a lot of different stocks, but I would be heavily exposed to manager. I mean, even in a company like Works of Hellaway that owns a lot of different subsidiaries, you're still exposed to Warren Buffett's ability to be capital uh, allocator. So my question to the Mastermind Group is, how many stocks do we need to own to diversify that managerial risk, the CEO risk, so to speak? Uh, it's a great question, Stig. And I, Buffett has said that You've got basically two choices when you invest. One of them is just to buy the most diversified, lowest cost index fund that you can find. Or you invest like a value investor and you find undervalued positions and you wait towards the ones that are the most undervalued. And he says that, um, you know, basically the better you are at identifying those opportunities, the fewer positions you need to hold. So for Buffett, he says five, Munger says three. I think uh, Pabrai would say 10, Klarman says 10. The academic literature says it depends a little bit, but it's somewhere between at 20, you've got kind of 94% of the uh, diversification achieved. And at 30, you've got kind of 97. And then you've got these re reducing returns to scale as you add more positions to the portfolio. You don't get any sort of additional benefit beyond that. The one thing that I always think about in relation to the indexes, so market capitalization weighting makes sense if what you're, what you're trying to achieve is to measure the performance of a market, but it doesn't really make sense to invest that way. And the reason is that when things get very expensive, they become an increasingly larger part of the index. And you, you're kind of putting more capital towards more expensive things when all else being equal, you'd rather not do that. So the solution is therefore to either equal weight which just gets rid of that random error, or you value weight, which is what um, you know we were talking earlier about those smart beta. That's exactly what smart beta does. So it's looking for some underlying metrics. So research affiliates have a thing called the fundamental index, and they weight according to the sales or the assets, or um, I think they might even have number of employees. So that's another way of weighting, fundamentally weighting. But I think the best way is to evaluate. So you look at a discount to valuation and then you weight and you need kind of a computer to do it if you're doing it across uh, an, an index of 3,000 positions or 500 positions or globally. But that's what I think they're going to do. And I think it's going to be very, very hard for active managers to beat those indexes going forward. That was awesome. Thanks for that response, Toby. That was fantastic. 
Um, I have nothing to add on that. Hari, did, uh, Colin, did you guys have anything to add on that one? I had, uh, I had just, uh, uh, one comment, like, you know, many times, like when people say risk, um, uh, some of them refer to volatility and some of them to permanent loss of capital and stick. I'm assuming you were referring to permanent loss of capital. Mm-hmm. Were you? Yeah, okay. that's correct. <laughs> yeah. In, in that sense, I think, uh, as Toby said, there are multiple, multiple ways. It all depends on your risk appetite and, uh, the kind of capital you have. Uh, for example, if you have a capital that's really long term and it's permanent in nature uh, as an individual investor, uh, I can stomach volatility better than a fund manager who has to answer to his uh, clients every other quarter. So it all depends on the situation of the investor, I believe. Okay, so um, I think that's that's a really good point that it really uh, depends. And you know, I also know it's hard to come up with a number. Like we would all like to have be able to quantify that and saying four or you need six. But let me rephrase the question differently then. Would you feel comfortable about only owning um, Berkshire Hathaway, for instance? So uh, the vast majority of Warren Buffett's own uh, net worth that's in Berkshire Hathaway because he says he is you know, heavily diversified. How would you feel about that, just owning one stock? I mean, do you feel this is diversified because you have that means you're at risk? Um, so I'll tell you the way I, I think about it. Um, number one, like, you know, whenever I'm thinking about, uh, returns I can get, um, in the market or I should get, I kind of consider my opportunity cost and also whether I deserve it in terms of the knowledge I have accumulated, the work I have put in. Um, so in the question is, uh, am I comfortable owning, uh, hundred percent or putting my hundred percent of my invest in Berkshire? Uh, at this point, I would say no. Um, and also it depends on the opportunity cost because I'm assuming I'm not going to put everything at once. So based on what's a better alternative at that point of time, um, that's how I would say it. I would be interested in knowing what are your, your thoughts on that. I think one of the, um, the reasons that smart beta is so attractive is that you don't have uh, that single person standing there who who can you know people people do get old they get dementia they get um they get emotional if they if they lose money some guys take big swings if they get down a lot and you could be in a position you could be in a fund like bill miller's so bill miller had a very good long-term track record something in the order of 13 years and then he had kind of a disastrous period that's why I, i always advocate for systematic um quantitative approaches to investment because it it just takes that human element out the the system always invests in a way that makes me really uncomfortable so we i think last time i was on we were talking about oil and gas at that stage i always feel like i have to apologize for what the system's doing because i always think this is the time when we're going to do something really stupid you know and you can i can i can read like anybody else can we can go out and see all of the people criticizing the tourists in oil and gas and, you know, the, the arguments that they make are good arguments. That's why it gets so cheap. That's The bears' arguments are always really good arguments. And I can read them and agree with them because I'm sort of naturally conservative as well. But over the long term, it has been um, a sensible thing to invest in those undervalued things where they look really – where their prospects look really bleak. And a, a computer will do that where a human um, can make mistakes. So that's why I, I think that smart beta or some variation of that's going to be – it sort of solves that problem a little bit. 
Um, whether you'd necessarily put all of your investment into a single one of those indexes, that's, you know, maybe three makes more sense of something happens to the person running the index or there's some fraud going on and um, you don't lose all of your eggs. But I think if you're in a good index and you're, you're, you've got a very long-term, tra- uh, long-term horizon, you, you, you're going to be fine. Uh, Toby, just a follow-up question. Uh, you talked about the system. Um, is the only way to invest in those systems is through a manager who is following that system? Or do you have any recommendation for somebody like me uh, who's an individual investor who can follow that system on my own? Um, it's easy enough to set them up yourself. If you, if you, you need to be able to, you need to be able to screen, uh, as a first step and, um, you know, the best books on screening are probably James O'Shaughnessy's what works on wall street. Um, and I have, you know, quantitative value and deep value, which are both sort of about screening, about valuation. Um, and then you need some, you just need a, a a sort of fixed handful of rules for the way that you're going to treat the portfolio and you need to write them down at the outset. So you decide yeah, we're going to, we're going to sit down with a portfolio every quarter and we're going to apply our handful of rules and we're going to buy without fear or favor and sell without fear or favor. Um, I think it's easier if you have it kind of automated because it, there's always that trick that you, it's hard to do it. Um, so, you know, the acquirer's multiple, just to plug that again, it does offer, it does offer a pretty good, you know, pretty good screen. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com call right now 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com kyle you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things how do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies yeah so i used to have a ton of issues with this and that was until i started using yahoo finance Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. 
you can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, back to the show. So I, I just want to throw this out there. So when we look at these different approaches, I'm kind of of the opinion, my my investing approach has kind of morphed through the last three to four years. And I kind of side more with Toby these days than I do um, with the the Bill Miller kind of style of individual stock picks. And um, just because I think it does take that emotional element out of it. And I think when you look at Ray Dalio, that's exactly what he's doing. He has a model uh, very similar to what kind of Toby's describing here, where it's, he's not making the picks. He has set up rules. He has programmed those rules into an algorithm and it's, it's making all the selections for him unemotionally. And he's doing it across a world economy. And that's the big thing with Dalio. So I got a two part question for the group. Uh, the first one is in 20 years, 25 years from now, do you think Ray Dalio will be viewed as a better investor than Warren Buffett? And then the other part uh, question, these kind of go hand in hand, maybe um, what is the biggest risk that you think we face uh, with the current market moving forward? Uh, Ray Dal- from what I understand, Ray Dalio has suggested that the biggest risk is the junk bond market and also the emerging bond market. Um, when you combine those two together, the emerging bond market and the junk bond market, it's accounting for about $15 trillion right now. And that's what they're kind of uh, pinning the rose on, that this thing's ultimately going to fall in on that as being the critical variable for the next crash. Um regardless of whatever psychological factor that might be the catalyst. Um, but I'm curious to know what your opinion on those two different questions as far as what's going to be the big risk that's going to make this thing fundamentally crash and also whether you think Dahlia will be viewed as a better investor than Buffett in the long term. I I'd actually uh, have no clue about the uh, the second question. So, <laughs> But the first question, uh, I would definitely say no. Um, and this is really a perception thing. I, he might get better returns. But there is just something about the art of picking individual stocks that are really hard to compete against. Even though that you have you know, created the best beta fund ever or even though you created the best screener ever, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that the public would really accept as being a great investor. I think the public would say, I understand Warren Buffett. I understand the principles he's outlining. I deeply admire his ability to pick the best stocks so that ergo that must be the best investor even though that we might see that a lot of people would, would gradually at least in my opinion go into this systematized way of indexing i think that the last um i still think that the vast majority would would look at the art about picking individual stocks as the finest art no matter what the returns are now see i, I guess i see it a different way i i look at the returns being the the true um, gauge, and I think that from my vantage point, I think Dalio protects his downside better than Buffett does. So I, that's maybe why I'm framing the question and asking, just to kind of get your opinion. I think Dalio has a little bit leverage, though, isn't he? Does he have some? He leverage is leveraged. Yeah, he is leveraged. Absolutely, he is. It's way too early to, uh, you know, Buffett. The reason why Buffett is so well regarded is because his track record is public and so long. Will Dalio in forty? You know, when Dalio's forty years into his career, he'll still be ten years behind where Buffett is now. Yeah, you know, Buffett's got a fifty-year public track record. It's just kind of with phenomenal returns over that period of time. 
but I think I think Stig's, Stig's approach is a good one to that. Buffett will be regarded as the better investor because he he doesn't hand it over to a system. He's done it himself. He smirked again. <laughs> 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 Go ahead, Hari. I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I think uh, I agree with Stig um, because that there are cha- there is a risk that um, even if Dolio succeeds, as uh, Toby just mentioned, people might credit the system. Um, but uh, I'm curious, how is it doing so far? Has he beaten Buffett uh, so far? No, you um, know, I think his I think his returns are probably around what are they annually? Fifteen percent over what a twenty five year period or something like that. They've been pretty good. I, I I don't think that they're at Buffett's nineteen point what is it nineteen point six percent or something like that over the fifty years or. And what is the capital he has under management? It's like a hundred billion. It's massive. Yeah, he's he, yeah, I think he's at one hundred and twenty billion. Okay, uh, that's pretty huge, and fifteen percent at that level seems quite impressive. The thing but that I, think I we're that, kind of missing. The, I guess the thing that I'm really impressed with is in oh eight oh nine with Dalio. Um, his alpha fund actually was in the green uh, in 08. Okay, which for me, that's just totally crazy, especially knowing that he has a computer algorithm making the trades. Like, I think that's totally crazy. Um, and then is the the year after that, or I'm sorry, no, in 2011, when the market was down, in 2011, when it was down, uh, I think he had something like a 30 to 40% return in the green during that year. I mean, it was massive. It was just he obliterated the market that year. So I guess I'm looking too recently on trends. And I mean, like Toby said, it's hard to go up against Buffett after he has such a long decades and decades of experience to prove that he can get a 19% return. That's really kind of hard to do that, but uh, well, it's next to near impossible to do that except for one person. <laughs> but um, I just, I, I wanted to frame that question because I have so much respect for Ray Dalio and I just wanted to hear what other people thought about it. I just wanted to actually jump on the second part of your question there about risk, Preston. Um, I recently read an article and I'm really interested to hear what everyone else thinks of this and and their thoughts on the topic, but it was called Radishes, Onions and the Stupidity of Debt. And what it was talking about uh, is the amount of margin that's being used on the New York Stock Exchange. Apparently, it crossed the 500 billion mark uh, in April up from something like 475 billion the month before. And I found that really interesting because that's roughly 50% higher apparently than it was right before the crash in 2007, 2008. So that's really interesting for me to see the amount of what is essentially just loans that people are taking and using to purchase their equity. So I just want to know what everyone else thinks um, when they hear those, those figures. It's, um, I think dshort.com has has the charts showing um, the amount of margin debt relative to the uh, market capitalization of the the NYC or whatever whatever the the index that it tracks. Um, it's extraordinary that it's been blown so big. I don't know I don't know contextually whether um, that's a bigger number than it was in 2007. And there does seem to have been sort of this consistent growth over a very long period of time. There's just more and more debt in the system all the time. I don't know whether that's kind of a secular thing that it just keeps on piling up forever and ever. And we look back in 20 years time and say 500 billion, how quaint, you know, that's, that's one tenth or one one hundredth of where it is now. Or whether it's one of those things that it only happens when interest rates get really, really low. And you've had a very long period of time where we've had really good returns on the stock market. That's one of those things that when it cracks, it's got to be making the system more fragile, right? 
it makes it harder for people to hold on to their positions. If you're down, you get a margin call. Like if you're even if you're a kind of guy who, who doesn't care about volatility in his own portfolio, you'll find that your broker does. You know, <laughs> your broker will be asking you to make good on those uh, on those positions that are down. And that's that's where forced selling, you know, the cascading forced selling. That's when you get the really big busts in the market. So yeah, it's a frightening thing that there's that much debt there. From my perspective, I think it's I'm in more in the second camp where it's fragilized and it's scary. I totally agree with Toby on that. Um, I think that it's creating a more fragile environment. I think that it will make your downside a little bit more abrupt. Um, he threw out a, a very important tip there. If you didn't hear it at the at the very start of what he said, dshort.com. D is in dog. Uh, don't spell it out. Just dshort.com. Go there. I'm telling you, the charts that Doug puts up on his uh, webpage are phenomenal. I go there all the time. I was really, I found that really interesting that you threw that out there, Toby, because we're going to the same site. Uh, Stig, I saw you had something you wanted to say. Yeah, and I actually like to talk about that exact uh, site because <laughs> I'm uh, <laughs> I'm such a huge huge geek. So I'm you know every month that these uh, charts are coming out. Uh, there's one month lag. You know, I'm always really excited to to see the development. And uh, Toby was completely right about the trend. So we will see more and more uh, debt uh, as we go along. And right now, it's it's around five hundred billion dollars. And I know that this. I mean, it, it's really hard to to yeah. How much is that? Five hundred billion. But uh, I actually posted uh, the chart on our forum and said, you know, guys, this looks really frightening in, in nominal numbers and almost also in, in relative numbers. Uh, we're looking all-time high. Um, I don't know what's happening, but, but it could crash. And then one of the, uh, Christoph, one of our uh, great users, he's, he's saying, well, you know, Stig, you might be right, but the market cap of S&P 500 is 20 trillion. So to me, it seems like relatively small amount of debt and you know, I don't know what to answer him. So, guys, I was really hoping for your help now that we're talking about it. I don't think you can look at it from a market cap. I think you have to look at it in terms of maybe trading volume, the the amount of trading volume per day. I could be wrong because that was just off the top of my head. But, uh, Toby, you seem to be nodding your head as well. Yeah, I think it's very hard to, to, to know what that number means Uh out of context. And that's kind of the point that I was making. It's hard to know whether that's a lot of money or, or, or not a lot. But the way that Doug puts those charts together on that, it certainly seems that you get these peaks in margin debt that coincide with peaks in the stock market, which which makes intuitive sense. And he also seems to be suggesting that when you get the reduction in margin debt seems to precede the bust, which I find really interesting. There's not enough data points. There's only three peaks that it captures but it seems to be that the margin debt comes off before the market comes off. I don't know how that is the case, but it's, uh, he has a discussion about it on his, on his site where he talks about that. Yeah, and I just want to throw out a, a quick uh, statistic. Uh, the correlation between debt and the market is 0.97. So it's, uh, it's quite significant, I'd say. So it's it's interesting, Colin. I think you kind of answered a little bit of my the second part of my question as far as what's the biggest risk that we have moving forward and what could potentially cause the downfall. So you're saying that because there's so much leverage on the market that you think that the that that's setting yourself up for margin calls that are really going to have kind of this quick and immediate impact if it gets much more leveraged. Um, does anyone else have any other uh, highlights or concerns that you think could be that critical variable from a fundamental standpoint, not a psychological standpoint, but a fundamental standpoint? I feel like uh, it's all about the easy money, um, and and today I think there is all the incentives for people to take debt, not just in the stock market, but every, everywhere else. 
And that's if when you when you talked about a fundamental factor, Preston, I would identify that as one of the fundamental factor how Fed incentivizes investors. Hey guys, so we typically play a question from a member of our audience, but instead of doing that, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and send Matt Hayon, who uh, sent me that email that we were talking about with uh, Manish Pabrai. We're going to send him a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. I also want to highlight the other members of our group. So Toby, he wrote this book called Deep Value. He also wrote a book called Quantitative Value, and they're fantastic books, uh, just totally amazing if you have not read these books. Um, also, he has a website called theacquiresmultiple.com. That's where he has a, this scheme that goes through and finds the enterprise value of these different companies and that they prioritize them for you. So I highly recommend his site if you're looking to take more of this quantitative approach. Uh, Colin has a website. It's called Inbound Interactive, where he is a search engine optimization expert. I highly recommend you go there, especially if your business is more of on the private level. He has a website that specializes in that to help you get ranked within Google for those local searches. We also have Hari Ramachandra, who's an executive over at LinkedIn. He has a website. It's called bitsbusiness.com, where he writes about going to the uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting to any other just business topic. I think you'll find uh, the things that he writes about extremely interesting. So uh, we're really just thrilled to have you in our audience. If you're really enjoying our podcast, please go to iTunes, leave us a review that helps us out so much. Uh, We just really appreciate everything that everyone's doing out there for us. And we really hope that you got something out of our mastermind discussion today. So we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.